You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented Trading Places. Joining me again is Emma Bennell. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm, uh, I have a slight cold, but apart from that, I'm absolutely fine, Richard. How are you? Very good. Uh, Join the club. Now, this is our, I suppose, final Christmas slash festive film of the season. Um, what's so special about Trading Places for you? Uh, I've been watching Trading Places since I was a little girl. Um, it's one of the ones that my brother really liked. And my brother used to get like really obsessed, not just with films, but with particular moments in films. So he would rewind... Uh, them over and over and over again and the train um, scene which we'll get to I'm sure but you know it's probably a bit dodgy now but he used to love that so we used to watch that over and over again and there are various lines in this that we always just quote to each other I just it's a film I've just loved all my life really so uh, you know whether it's a Christmas movie or not it's definitely a film that makes me feel festive now we were talking about this um, sort of before we started recording. Now this is, um, I suppose, not perhaps one of the obvious Christmas films of, of the eighties. It's as much set around Christmas, but also New Year, really. Which is funny. Bear in mind that the last time you were on the pod it was about a film that ended on New Year, as um, yes. was when Harry met Sally. So. But yeah, it's strange. Um, it's often you know lumped in. It's always on the the Sky Christmas movie channel you know we've got huge parts of it and yet a lot of people remember parts you know the the train being the main one where you know it's mostly Eddie Murphy saying Merry New Year and yeah and uh, Jim Belushi he he was good in that I mean normally I I find him a bit up and down but uh, he was maybe in small doses yes he's a good cameo artist yeah (laughs) less good leading man I'll agree with that so this film came out in um, 1983 and what I've started doing recently is also chucking in um, some of the director's credits, normally for funny reasons, but it turns out that John Landis has directed several of my certainly favourite films, what films Absolutely. are up there. I mean, I suppose for me, Coming to America is kind of the, the main one, but mm. you know, he did Three Amigos, The Blues Brothers, the music video for Thriller. You know, this this guy had a massive impact on 80s me. Well, John Landis, um, speaking of films that my brother got obsessed with, Coming to America was another one. Um, he would rewind the um, the band performance. <laughs> Sexual uh, and, chocolate. You know, the, we just look at, and to this day, I'm, I'm now in my 40s, my brother's in his late 30s, and we could just turn to each other and say, Sexual chocolate! Or just crack <laughs> up for hours. Um, and again, the Blues Brothers, I don't think there's a line in that I can't quote. It's amazing the impact that his films have had. Um, mm. I, I went to a screening of Coming to America at the BFI last month, and oh, um, they did a Q&A with John Landis afterwards. It was on Skype, but unfortunately I had to leave because I'd, I'd work the next morning. But um, it's you know amazing that you know, this was, and, and I mean, this is Coming to America, so I'll probably talk about that if I ever do that pod, but you know, a film that was 30 years old, and the BFI, you know, one of the big important cinemas in central London was full on a Friday night for essentially coming to America. It's brilliant. And of course, there is a connection because yeah. maybe we want to talk about that later because otherwise it's quite a spoiler for the end of this film. <laughs> but there is, you know, the beginning of or early in coming to America, you do see some of the characters from here. Yes. It's um, a small little universe it occupies. Yes. So this film, it's um, it's set in Philadelphia, and the opening credits, it very much verges between the more affluent parts of, of the city and also the very poor parts, which, funny enough, I'm sure I've seen in Rocky, and you can even see the Rocky statue at some point in the credits as well, just to, uh, just to really ram it home. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it doesn't take long for you to realise that the, the premise of the film is that Louis Win- Winthorpe, he's the the affluent, he's very good at his job, he has to be woken up by his butler and reads the paper while he's being shaved, and even that, um, he as he leaves his house in the morning to go to work, he won't even go to the car until the door's open for him. It's a very special existence. Mm, very privileged, very pampered. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, it's... I suppose part of it would be the uh, the American dream for some. A lot of people would see that and think, oh, I fancy some of that. Yes. 
Um, and I think the fact that that he's Lewis Winthorpe the third is not lost on you know this is yes. this is inherited wealth as much as it's you know him being good at his job. Shortly after we cut to the mansion where Randolph and Mortimer Duke, the Duke brothers, live, um, they again have a cast of thousands serving them. They walk to the car and everyone's like, "Good morning, Mister Duke. Good morning, Mister Duke." Again, just that to 99% of the world that's just well 99.9% of the world that's a completely alien concept and yet for them you know they've probably had that their whole life and it's a very good insight I'm sure into you know what we're dealing with at at one end of the spectrum of this film before we go very much to the other end and we meet um, Billy Ray Valentine Yes, uh, who we, we first don't we first encounter him begging outside the Duke's club Yeah um, pretending to have no legs. He's um. Oh, this was Eddie Murphy. It was only his second film um, after Forty Eight Hours. Really, and it's amazing. Really, uh, I guess a performance. Yeah, bear in mind, you know, the the first one as well. Um, you know, this isn't someone who had a film career anyway, where he sort of worked his way up. I mean, obviously, he did in mm. in comedy circles and talked about it a little a little bit when sort of Steve Martin for example it's slightly different but again you know a lot of people forget he was such a mm. huge stand-up comedian before he went into films and yet Eddie Murphy in this just absolutely steals the show not just as begging Billy Ray you know it's the it's easy for him to say he's like I ain't seen nothing since I stepped on a landmine in Viet Cong in 72 it's it's a you know he's sort of pure electric performance mm. really yeah, he, I mean, he's incredible in it, and you know, and throughout, and he does both sides of Billy Ray. You know, when, when as the experiment c- goes on, you know, it's it's a subtle performance as well as being a bravura performance. Because this is part of, I mean, the the main premise of the film I touched upon is that the Duke brothers, who are so rich from basically trading commodities, which is not something I'm particularly au fait with, even with my economics degree. I'll give that away. They, um, after a, a sort of chance meeting between Louis and Billy Ray outside the club, where um, Billy Ray bumps into Louis and Louis immediately sees a poor black man and assumes that he's being robbed because there's a slight contact he drops his briefcase and of course this becomes a bit of a slapstick sketch being chased around the club but for them it's just a chance to have a little bit of fun and while talking about Louis deciding that is he the product of his environment or is it because of superior breeding the the whole concept of the inherited wealth and the fact that he made them was it $350,000 in about 20 seconds with pork belly yes yeah, that's, that's not something to be sniffed at when you're having, having your bowl of Aldi Cheerios in the morning. <laughs> so the Dukes, it, it seems that, um, now I can never remember which one's Randolph and which one's Mortimer. Ralph Bellamy says, you know, it's all a product of environment and this guy could be perfect if we had the right background. And Don Amici, I mean, it's an incredible cast. Yeah. Uh, it's like, no, 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 it's all about breeding. So yeah, Randolph, who is Ralph Bellamy, um, that he that that's what where the bet is set up is that's where their disagreement Randolph is very into kind of looking at um in, in the nature versus nurture debate it's fascinating when you think about um, without trying to get too sort of philosophical or anything it's something i suppose that people have probably pondered for years or decades and thinking that if you know is is it pure lottery that you know people born into a certain postcode for example will get you know advantages that others don't and the fact that louis is so gifted at his job but the idea that could we play someone of billy ray's i suppose assumed background and think that he'll do as good if not a better job and all they need to do is get him out of jail dress him up as alan partridge and give him a job i mean it was a very very live debate in the 80s the uh there was a a lot of stuff about nature versus nurture and particularly some quite racial racially tinged um oh their brains are different from ours stuff um was happening in the uh 80s and 90s it was sort of a a kickback against the sort of civil rights 60s so it was it was a very very live debate then where some people tried to prove that black people were just genetically less intelligent. Um, it, you know, it's not their fault, bless them, poor dears, kind of thing. Um, I mean, it was all complete bull. 
box, but um, but it was a live debate at that time. So it may well have been the sort of thing that that people like the Dukes would have would have discussed over breakfast. And this is very much the sort of rich man's club discussion, and uh, the the very fact that you know, not giving it away, their their wager over whether they could almost get away with it. And and of course, there are two sides to the coin where it's not just, can we get Billy Ray Valentine to become, you know, a huge executive in a commodities trading firm? The other side of the coin is also, can we make someone of Louis Winthorpe's background become so desperate that he goes and takes up a life of crime? All for a bet of one dollar yeah it just to show that they don't need any money it's purely symbolic yeah uh yes exactly they 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 take these people's lives and mess around with them just because they can nice power to have yeah <laughs> <laughs> now the way they managed to discredit louis is that in the um the gentleman's club i was almost tempted to call it working man's club but that's very much not the case um You've got Louis in the club and they managed to get their, I suppose, hired goon, Clarence Beaks. He's, a, I suppose, a private security guard. He seems to be permanent in, in their pocket. He slips some marked bills into Louis's pocket and uh, they do a, a very large outing of him in front of all his peers. Now, Beaks has already been mentioned because Louis sort of come across his name and while doing the payroll, and it's all very, oh, no, no, the, the Duke brothers, oh, well, we'll we'll take care of this, we'll take care of this. But it was nice to see he was the, um, the teacher from the Breakfast Club. Yes, yes, he's, uh, he's a great baddie, that guy. He's in a few things, a few iconic baddies. Yeah, he's really cornered the market in 80s grumpy middle-aged man. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, the man you love to hate in the yeah. 80s. Him and um, Daubney Coleman. Yes. <laughs> so Louis gets arrested at the club, obviously ashamed because that's part of the plan is they have to really embarrass this guy. They can't just force him to lose his job. And weirdly, when he gets taken to the police station, the, the cop who they, or who beaks bribes, it's I didn't realise that until last night I watched it, was Frank Oz. Yes. Yoda. Help you again. Yes. He also cameos in the Blues Brothers, so I suspect him and John Landis are good mates. And I guess for us, it's nice because I'm saying we we could probably walk past him in the street a hundred times and not know who he is. He's Miss Piggy. <laughs> Piggy, he's Yoda, he's everything. You know, he's one of the most famous actors in the world, yet you'd struggle to recognise him. Yeah, absolutely. Louis in the police station giving it the old, you know, this is a career decision, you know, you'll live to regret this. And then the, the massive cop just stands up and says strip you little shit before i tell you a new asshole it's the language in this given how young my brother must have been <laughs> when we first watched it i'm quite surprised we were allowed to uh, yeah i've discussed this on other pods where i saw these cuts of films with all these bad language always seem to make it on telly and i'm not sure whether the the language was in intact or not it was just yeah no that's a good point because i was a bit shocked by how much swearing so maybe the version that we taped off the telly was a bit, <laughs> a bit yeah i'm sure imagine watching this on itv would just say strip before i tell you in an arsehole at three o'clock in the afternoon and they, they find a big bag of angel dust in his pocket and he's at pains to tell everyone it's not heroin it's pcp louis leaves the police station gets met with his his girlfriend and she meets him, he smells, he's wearing bad clothes because the men in the jail have robbed him of his clothes and as he's at pains to let everyone know, tries to have sex with him. Beeks is standing nearby and has managed to pay a local prostitute $100 to walk up and kiss and talk dirty to him just to sort of really ram home the shame in front of his girlfriend. Um, I suppose it's almost a, an 80s American thing they expect a lot of prostitutes to be wandering around just touting for business as a local shame merchant. Well, I think, to be fair, she's just been released from overnight custody because he picks her up in the hallway of the police station and she's she's like, look, you can't solicit me here. You can't, you're not going to entrap me literally in the police station. You undercover cops must be desperate. Yeah. But this is Ophelia, so it's Jamie Lee Curtis. This is her first real role other than... I suppose horror films so this was her breakout as well other than halloween yeah i mean be, halloween yeah. was kind of her her big role but it was it was you know it was genre and this was the first sort of big 
Hollywood style, yeah. uh, more mainstream, I suppose. But um, even little things that, you know, her name's Ophelia, where they, they make a big part, or Louis makes a big part. Anyways, oh, it's like Hamlet's girlfriend, just to kind of show off his, sort of his last side, I suppose. Yes. Although she's very aware of the story, so she's not, she's, she's yeah. not made out to be stupid in any way. No, because once she she sort of shows pity on him, I suppose, um, takes him back to her place to kind of help him get him back on her feet. Or once he's managed to go back to his old house anyway, you know, it suddenly becomes that she's actually really, she's very intelligent. She's saving up. She's sort of made these plans for her life and career, fully aware that what she does is what she does and it's her means of, of doing that. Yeah, no, and she's not, you know, she's not embarrassed by it and she makes it very clear that, um, although she is helping Louis, it's a business transaction. She wants something from him when he's back on his feet. She strips off and then says, yeah, but this don't come for free and closes the door <laughs> on him. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the most frozen scenes on any yeah. VHS. By the way, food and rent are not the only things around here that cost money. You sleep on the couch. So Louis's already been home. They've changed... Uh, now, the Duke's... Because they own everything, they've changed the locks. Coleman, the butler, has played dumb because he's been told about this experiment. Well, he actually, and I think slightly oddly, this this for me is unrealistic. Hmm. Works for the Dukes. He makes that explicit. Yeah. So I'm I, guessing I, that the home comes with the job. I assume so. I mean, I, I sort of show my sort of background. I, I thought it would be like if you're a footballer or something and, you know, you sign for a football club and they provide you with your home and they have people to help you out. And I guess this must be quite similar if, you know, he probably takes a wage, but the home's included. And Yeah, I mean, it must be a perk thing. Like some jobs come with a car, some jobs do come with a flat. Yeah, it does seem... Uh, but then for him, I suppose, I mean, I don't know how long he had been working, or the butler for Louis. I suppose that the final sort of scene between them, there had been, you know, he seemed quite annoyed by Louis's ways. I think the yeah, I think it, to, to get him to suddenly change loyalties, as it were, didn't seem like it was that much of a hassle, really. It wasn't a huge stretch because he thought Louis was a bit of a brat. Yeah. I mean, Denham Elliott is my favourite. He is brilliant. He's, I, adore him the bit where him and louis and the girlfriend go off and have really dull sex <laughs> uh, and they don't want the dessert that he's clearly been slaving over in front yeah. of them it's one of those flambe things and then he just he says oh you have it and he just goes straight in the kitchen and puts it in the bin and i think it was, it was just after that that he got the phone call actually wasn't it so it was always yeah, like, it was the exactly. perfect time so it was well <laughs> because billy ray has been already introduced to Coleman and there's the funny scene where they're, they're trying to explain sort of Coleman and the Dukes that you know this is all Billy Ray's this is his vase this is his TV and there are parts where because Billy Ray seems to be almost trying to be polite and human towards Coleman that then it's almost like his loyalty is already gone because you know even I think that the part where Billy Ray he goes to the bar and brings everyone back Coleman looks like he's starting to enjoy himself at the party a little bit as all these people that he's probably never come across in his life. Yeah. He's enjoying himself and and towards the end when when Billy Ray starting to turn into a Louis starts throwing everyone out and he says, "Oh, you know, yeah, maybe I will retire. Thanks." And it's obviously like the first time that anyone's thanked Coleman for anything in 20 years. Yes, yes, they um you know he's not the furniture to those people where whereas for you know Louis and his mates he's just there's just an assumption that he's always there. The help. Billy Ray starts his new day at the at Dukes and Dukes. The cab pulls alongside the cab that Louis and Ophelia are in pulls alongside the limo and there's the sort of thing tiny tiny limo. It's really funny. It's like you don't when he calls it a limousine and I, I, was, I think this is just a modern thing because I, I don't remember this ever jarring for me before. But when Billy Ray's in the bar picking up all his mates and he says, look outside, that's my limo. And they look outside and there's Coleman by this this car that is not remotely stretched at all. And I'm that's a limo. In my imagination, limos are about three times the size of that, the length of that. <laughs> yeah, because this is like a, a, I mean, a very nice classic looking Mercedes, but it's, um, I mean, certainly not a stretch limo or anything that you'd see no. on My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding or something like that. It's, uh, no, or in just any any Hollywood premiere, yeah. you know. 
it's obviously that what's happened since the 1980s that limos have just got longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and we would have not picked up on that then. But now it's like, that's not, that ain't, that's not a limo. This is a limo. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a limo. Yeah. <laughs> One of the next scenes is it always struck me as really creepy. Um, they go to the tennis club. Um, oh, yes. You know, Louis goes there to, to speak to his former friends and, and that to clear his name. And there's these four guys wearing like cricket jumpers, I suppose, the sort of dickheads you'd see at Lords on a Thursday morning, um, singing a cappella to these four women who seem to be lapping it up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and and the song they sing seems to be about the women. Yeah. Um, and not very complete. I mean, you know, sort of basically, sort of talking about their sexual sexual behaviour, as far as I can tell. And it, yeah, it's so it's like Revenge of the Nerds type gross. You know? <laughs> it's it maybe something that we don't understand as a a courtship ritual of the well off. But yeah, maybe maybe that's why I've never landed myself anyone from the aristocracy. <laughs> To be honest, if they sing to you like that, would you want to? God, no. Uh, <laughs> also, if they call you Muffy, it's like, no, I did mm. not wish to be called Muffy or Buffy. Well, I would be Buffy, but yeah, <laughs> that's a story. That's an odd set of names. I, I just find it strange. I mean, I, I go to, um, I do occasionally go to the cricket and um, it's very, it's almost like a social experiment for me because I, mean, I grew up very much not of that set and uh, mm-hmm. seeing the, I mean, it's the famous sort of that blog about the, the guys wearing red chinos and yeah. it is very much like that and I imagine that there's probably people in the corporate boxes at Lord's singing these songs to whichever poor women happen to be in their yeah. vicinity. And I mean, that, there was... That, there was also, I mean, the, the fiancé is clearly already with Todd, you know, being very proprietary about her. Uh, and that was just a bit like, I mean, it's been what a day. Yeah, because she was using Todd as a sort of weapon against Louis before when he said yeah. he couldn't go to her mum's party or something. And she was like, OK, I'll go with Todd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, I thought that, I mean, she's very underwritten. She's clearly just a foil. But yeah, there was a that was kind of like oh right, well that's that's clearly moved on then. <laughs> but I, li- I felt a little too quickly, even under the circumstances she thought she was in. Yeah, I suppose even in a film like this, you can only have one fairly well-rounded female character. Um, yeah, God forbid you should have more than one. No, and even <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis didn't pop up for about forty-five minutes. So well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Louis, because he's turned up in a in a load of clothes that Ophelia had in her wardrobe, um, looking very much like a pimp. Yes. He suddenly realised because they're laughing at him and and his appearance. Um, he goes off to pawn his seven thousand dollar watch, and um, Bo Diddley gives Bo Diddley yeah <laughs> gives him fifty dollars for it, and then he buys a gun with it. That's another crossover from the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Again, it's just little things like this that pop up, and it does seem like there's a very small little world that we're just sort of watching from afar. Landis world, yeah. Wouldn't be a bad place to be. So Louis bought a gun. He goes to the Christmas party at Duke and Duke dressed as Santa, downtrodden. You know, it's not even a clean Santa costume. It's filthy. There's disgusting grey beard and him trying to hide a whole salmon inside his yeah. jacket and bits of ham in the pocket now I mean I'm I do like a good ham at Christmas uh part of me is all tempted to you know perhaps sneak a slice into the pocket but yeah this is really just this is the part where the Dukes do win their bet about the fact that they drive yeah. him to this Hit rock and having to go back to his old place of work and try and plant drugs on Billy Ray Valentine. It's uh And pulling a gun on various people. Yeah. And he he seems to enjoy the that that see that that part where he jumps on the table, wheels the gun and everyone ducks. Just in that half a second he has that face of, Wow, this is this is power. Yes, I, I, he feels re empowered, I think, for the first time since all of the, the nightmare began. Yeah. Uh, it's a different type of power, but you know, that's clearly what he wants, is that sense of power. It's just a shame he has to go and drown it in sort of a bottle of Jack Daniels or something. Well, and then, you know, um, once he's lost it again, he, he loses it properly and he tries to kill himself. Yeah. Uh, um, first of all with the gun and then with pills. Yeah. But it's at the, at the Christmas party, because um, 
Billy Ray, he's um, and and again, this is the sort of an easy joke, you know, when he's putting the drugs in the bin, he obviously keeps one of the, yeah. the joints in his pocket and goes off to the the gents and has a little smoke. The Dukes come in, and while Billy Ray's in the cubicle, they start talking about the bet, and this is where they use the N word and yeah, yeah, you know, and this is when like any sort of. I mean, I mean, they are maybe not the villains, but the antagonists of the film. They are, I guess now it's easy to say sort of 35 years later, God, just in using I won't have an N word running our company. Yeah. Immediately. It's like, right, done. Yeah, they place themselves. And I think what's most interesting is it's the one who seems the more liberal of the two who says that. Yeah. That's obviously a deliberate choice. Because it immediately thinks, right, right, these aren't just two old codgers who are bored and looking to have some fun with their money, which it, this is them, right, and actually deliberately unpleasant, you know, horrible people. who, yeah. you know. And because Billy Ray's heard this, you know, he, I mean, obviously he's suspicious of everything anyway. In that walk of life, if two rich old people come up and suddenly give you charity. Yeah. It's bad enough when he gets in the car with them at the beginning and he thinks that they're... You know whether they're trying to use him as a prostitute or paying him in cigars and whiskey and yeah, but yeah, he's he's really distrustful of them anyway, and it doesn't take you know this this is all it is just to kind of convince him that right this is bad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and yeah, he well, and also I think he he has more sympathy for Dan Aykroyd's character than 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 Winthorpe had for him. You know, he immediately goes and to his house to try and you know to say to him look this is what they've done to us i'm not sure that if it'd been the other way around winthorpe would have done the same no no because it still takes him a while to almost come round. yeah exactly and um because i mean part of that conversation between the brothers was that okay well we'll send valentine back to the ghetto or whatever but they wouldn't take louis back no no not after what he'd done these yeah both of their lives are now screwed yeah so so even the part of the bet where we'll restore him it's like no 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 not after what he's done and billy ray's the real sort of hero of the piece i suppose in the fact that he does find louis in ophelia's bathtub having tried yeah it's almost like a cliche sort of 80s tv like dallas or dynasty sort of show where louis wakes up in his own bed and oh yeah this horrible dream yeah and you were there, and you were there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, yes, and then he spots Billy Ray and he tries to kill him. Uh, and yeah, while Billy Ray is choking, he's like, it was that Dukes, it was that Dukes. <laughs> <sighs> it was a dream. I dreamt the whole thing. It was just a bad dream. Good morning, sir. Merry Christmas. Coleman, I've had the most absurd nightmare. I was poor and no one liked me. I lost my job, I lost my house. Penelope hated me. And it was all because of this terrible, awful Negro. It was the Dukes, it was the Dukes. You're a dead man, Valentine! It then becomes quite a straightforward you know that that you've got your gang of four really yeah it's a caper movie from here on in. yeah because ophelia because we know that she's an intelligent person she's good with money she's yeah sort of savvy she's the one who kind of encourages them i mean they're, they're sort of plotting their revenge and louis get cleaning his shotguns and everything else and billy ray saying well the best way to do that as you know to get at them is to make them poor and she recognizes beaks on the telly because there's this plot and this is the part where i suppose myself and several people probably go cross-eyed at the orange crops and how they're going to make money out of frozen or yes. orange juice yeah and the, the the thing in this film that for me is least realistic is using beaks for both jobs yeah i mean it just seems like really like they're very rich why would you do that it's difficult if you're using the same person to both steal orange crop reports and to discredit employees. Um, yeah. I suppose it's that old sort of, you know, keep keep your parts of the business separate. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, I kind of get what was going on with the orange crop report, but I know I didn't when I was younger. No. Like, what? 
like, uh. <laughs> I'm not the greatest with money at the moment anyway, so even if they came up to me with <laughs> this sort of basically golden goose, I'd sort of still go, orange juice. Uh. Yeah, exactly. I know, it's weird that they went for orange juice. When you think of that, those commodities, quite often what you think of is pork bellies because of all the sort of, you know, living high on the hog, that kind of thing. Or gold. Yeah. Gold is the obvious, but I suppose you can't have a crop report about gold. No, but then this is when they, the part where they try to explain the commodities to Billy Ray. Yeah. And that part where they're saying, they're explaining the job and he gives that look to camera as like they're talking down to me, the fuckers. Mm. And just that look to where he's just kind of, they're talking to him like he's a two-year-old yeah yeah Yeah, it's priceless but it also does the job of telling the audience exactly what the commodities market (laughs) is why it's in there this is gold this is pork belly like your bacon we sell you know and and he likens it to bookies yes because i mean that's exactly what the commodities market is is betting on what the price of something will be the fact that they make them and then the fact that they make their money either way either they you know the client makes or loses money but they still get their commission yeah yeah it's i mean i I don't know you know again like orange crop reports in the 80s but it seemed to be this whole huge thing and, and maybe just because back in 1983 i wasn't quite in the circles of the new york stock exchange i mean i was um barely walking probably um but this is yeah. i don't think it was a whole huge thing in that the whole country was tuned in <laughs> but it would have been on uh whatever the business channel you know, the Bloomberg of its day. So I think it, it was a big thing in the stock exchange. I don't think the people don't like, so I was in New York um, when the Christine Blasey Ford thing was happening and literally every television in every bar and when I went and had my nails done, I watched it in there. You know, it was everywhere. This isn't that. This is a very specific audience who are tuned to it because it, they need to know for their, for their jobs. Yeah. I suppose, well, my equivalent of that would be, I think I was in Vegas when the last episode of Friends was on. Oh, wow. And because even then, I think the UK was probably a week or so behind and I was trying to avoid it. And they showed the last scene on a sports channel. Oh, my gosh. Because everyone was talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, oh. I was also in New York on 9-11. Oh, okay. Not New York. I was was in in California on 9-11 having just landed from Vegas at two in the morning. So we must have been one of the last planes in the air um, before it all happened. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was again, you know, ubiquitous. Yeah. I was at Gatwick Airport, actually, when that happened. Oh, really? Yeah. Went on holiday still a day later. <laughs> now, again, this is something that we'd probably see massive different in the stock exchange. Um, I mean, jumping in a little bit, I mean, the whole scene where, Billy Ray and Louis are going towards the stock exchange, you know, and, and Louis saying, "Oh, it's you know, you've never seen anything like it. It's kill or be killed, you know." And this really is like deathmatch sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a very macho. Yeah, you know, it's sort of boisterous men waving bits of paper, shouting "buy, sell, whatever." And Eddie Murphy looked like he was having the time of his life, and apparently admitted he didn't know what the hell he was doing. He just followed the script and didn't know anything about what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, he's like, I'll buy for you, I'll buy for you, I'll buy for you. <laughs> quite camp at that point as well, quite funny. Yeah, just um, just enjoy but, it. Yeah, he's clearly just having a laugh. And like, yeah, I mean, to be fair though, neither did Billy Ray, so it wasn't out of character. No, he's there to make a bit of money and help bring the the downfall of the Duke brothers. I mean, it was good fun. Now. I've just realised I've completely jumped over perhaps one of the funniest parts of the film, uh, the whole train scene. Yes. <laughs> Funny, but also watching with modern eyes. It's like, oh, oh, God. Oh, my God, what is Dan Aykroyd doing? I, know. I mean, I didn't realise. I mean, I, I have seen it a few times, and I think maybe maybe it's just because I'm watching it slightly differently now because, you know, do, doing the podcast and stuff. Um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, some of this is borderline well i mean it's offensive but it's just ridiculous so beaks has got the report for the orange crop that he's going to take to to the dukes um yeah he gets on the it's like a party train from is it from philadelphia to washington Philadelphia to uh new was it what no washington to philadelphia i think yeah they're setting up everything from the beginning you've got jim belushi dressed as an ape 
Yeah. You've got gorilla. A gorilla. He's very, very of strict course, on that yeah. point. He's not a, not a monkey motherfucker. I think you tell someone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and there's also the real gorilla that's being loaded. Being tra- by a very young Al Franken. <laughs> Speaking of things that are slightly dodgy these days. Yes. So this real gorilla is being transported on the train in order to be shipped to Africa. And Beeks is on there. You know, he thinks he's going to have a nice little train ride. There's the part of the beginning where he, he winds up the gorilla through the window, starts pulling faces. And yeah. I suppose we'll find out later. It actually looks like a courting ritual of some sort. <laughs> and Billy Ray burst into the the cabin as um an exchange student from the cameroon uh yes uh, this is, i suppose this is a almost a link to come into america itself i mean that that part's you know he's very very loud and outlandish yes he's wearing a full dashiki and everything isn't he? oh he's in the full garb and and with a was it the elephant tail or something yeah he has sort of yeah and look elephant tail kind of fly swatting <laughs> yeah. So he goes and sits down and, you know, to, I suppose the object of this is to, to distract Beeks in order to steal his briefcase. Coleman, because he's very much part of this. this it's group. Coleman and Ophelia. Oh, um, they love it. Both invest in this scheme. Yeah, and we find that shortly afterwards, literally in put the house on it. Yeah. Um, Coleman comes in as a, an Irish priest. The whiskey and everything, yeah. yeah. Ophelia comes in as a Swedish in lederhosen but, but as as yeah as coleman points out but you're wearing lederhosen <laughs> yeah. which are austrian <laughs> I, I read on imdb apparently she couldn't do an austrian accent very well nah. i mean to be honest i'm not sure many people can but um it's easy to say well, you just go german don't you oh, i, I mean when everyone does a freudian accent what they do is go german yeah i suppose it's more cheeky funny swedish you know if she's got the blonde wig on and almost everything on show just to distract Beeks enough by putting my rucksack on the shelf. Yeah. Well, that sounded more German. Fuck. I am putting my rucksack on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, it's all up and downy like a Swedish chef. <laughs> I'm sure if my wife walks in and hears me trying to talk Swedish and with her. F- <laughs> We're recording this on Finnish Independence Day. Happy birthday, Finland, or something. Yeah, let's chuck that in. Hey, hey, Finland. Hey, hey. That's the only thing I know, but hey, hey. Yeah, <laughs> goodbye, yes. Um, Is it hey for hello and hey, hey for goodbye? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's what... My, I grew up with a Finnish friend. Okay. Well, her parents were Finnish, but that's literally all I know. <laughs> That's all right. My, my two-year-old speaks more Finnish than I do anyway. There you go. Yeah. Hey, let me see now. You would be from uh, Austria. Am I right? No, I am Inga from Sweden. Sweden? But you're wearing lederhosen. Yeah, for sure, from Sweden. Please to help me with my rucksack. Oh yeah, sure, why not? So they managed to switch briefcases because Billy Ray has the identical one, switches it with um, Winthorpe, who's in the toilet. And they get busted when Louis walks into the cabin and the only way of describing it is just blacked up. He is, yeah, he's blacked up. He's For, for literally no good reason, he's blacked up as a kind of 1980s style black civil rights activist uh you know he's wearing kind of all the 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 kind of cool denim stuff yeah and i just there is literally no reason for this i'm like why couldn't he have just been a white i mean i suppose beats would have recognized him i think the argument is Beeks would have recognised Louis. But the thing is, is that he recognised him anyway. Yeah. It, it, yeah. They, they had the, um, Louis and, and Billy Ray had their discussion about the, uh, was it the, the African seminar, wherever it was they were supposed to have met before and do their little dance. And then Beeks immediately... Babule, babule, babule. Beeks immediately pulls his Rasta wig off and pulls a gun on him. Yeah. Yeah, and and I don't really understand why. I I mean, I haven't watched it that closely, but why did Dan Aykroyd have to be in the carriage? Why weren't the three of them doing the exchange in the carriage enough? It strikes me almost as he just wanted to get in on it. But yeah, while Beeks had certainly come across Ophelia before, but it just strikes. Yeah, it's almost that sort of hubris, really. Yeah, yeah. But it does allow them to. 
to be led into the uh, the gorilla car. Indeed, and you know, uh, and Beeks says in that so he Beeks is doing all the swaggering, yeah. so he's you New Year is over, and Jim Belushi is trying to follow a at this point and he's like really into her so he's like over you moron it's only just started and so he follows them in the gorilla costume which is an important detail yes because um as Beak- beaks gets hit by the gorilla because he assaulted because he assaults jim Belushi. yeah so the gorilla obviously sees him assault another gorilla and thinks no not having that they dress him up in and then there is a look between louis and, and billy ray and it's like right let's put the gorilla suit on him and stick him in the gorilla cage Probably knowing, I'd imagine, what's likely to happen. Yes. Well, I mean, is it likely? I mean, I don't know very much about these things. Um, Between this and Firstborn, that's my only understanding of interspecies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you're a gorilla trapped in a cage, you have urges. Um, Yes. But do you have urges for someone who's actually just someone in a gorilla suit? And also, without wishing to go into too graphic a detail... (laughs) What kind of a gorilla suit allows that kind of access? Before I tell you, a new asshole. Maybe the... I don't really want to go into the science. <laughs> Let's just say, by the time the gorilla cage reaches the sh- the docks on the boat to Africa, it looks like they're in love. Well, it looks like one of them. Yeah. The other one's designed. And never has these eyes of, oh, God, all the way to Africa. That's a long trip. <laughs> That's a long, long trip. Uh, yes, it, it is. Uh, and, you know, that, that's it. That's the end of being. So the last we hear is he's being shipped off to be released into the wild. Yeah, if he makes it that far. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, we, we've sort of touched on the um, the stock exchange part. So they go off. Um, now, Coleman has given Louis and Billy Ray his life savings. Ophelia's given her them the money that she'd saved up. So that, I think she said that was about 50 grand. 42,000, I think. And they've also got the money that they, because they posed as beaks to get the, uh, to give the fake orange crop report to the Duke. Yeah, they've got the cash that was given to him for that. Yeah, so we don't know exactly how much money they've got, but they've got a fair bit of enough, enough to, to start anyway. Now, this is the part where I, I, I don't know what's going on. The Dukes are trying to buy all the stock because they think that they've got insider knowledge that they're going to make a load of money. Because of the... So basically, my understanding is the crop report, when it comes out, says that the cold weather has not affected the harvest. So the worry would have been before the crop report came out that the orange juice would have had a problem. There would have, wouldn't have been enough of it to go around. Now, my slight instinct is that the price would have gone up if it got rarer. Yeah. So why they were buying the stock, I don't know. But that's maybe just me being pernickety. But so, yeah, basically, they're trying to corner the market on orange juice because they they know what's going to be in the report and other people don't. Yeah. So they, they think that orange juice is going to be super scarce. And thus, if they buy it all, they'll have control of all of it. But then so they start buying it. The price goes up. And then all of a sudden, Billy Ray and Louis start selling, which then drives the price down sort of far lower than it was when it started. Yeah. And it turns out that by the close of trading, they've lost $394 million. Yeah. And because they don't have that much cash, basically they are ruined because they have to seize and repossess everything they own. That's quite brutal, but, I mean, they're they're the rules. I'm sure they've made, and as they say, you know the rules better than anyone. Yeah, because they practically built the stock exchange, as they say. Yeah, and in fact, I'm sure they've seen plenty of their rivals go out of business because of deals. Um, I guess if insider trading was the done thing, then I suppose that's the the advantage you have to take. Exactly, exactly. No, they 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 lose by the rules of their own game. I would just like to go back a moment because there's a scene that I really really love, which is just before the stock exchange opens, hmm. and yeah, you know, all the traders are really stressed out. One of them is sort of drinking, and one of them is <laughs> taking pills, and then Billy Ray and and Winthorpe are just stood there um, doing their hair yeah. really, really calmly. And, it, I mean, the funny part is, like, Winthorpe actually you know, has long hair and he's sort of combing it into just making it very, very neat. And then Billy Ray just gets out a little comb. And, you know, nothing changes <laughs> on his hair at all. But he's just, clearly just a pose. He's quite a large afro comb as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's, he has not got an afro. Yeah. So, yeah, that, but that's kind of, kind of, yeah, we're so cool. We're yeah. kind of, like, chill. We're up against all these sharks, but 
inside they're not really sharks because we can see how nervous they are. We know what they're doing. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Well, no, first of all, you have to, they, they reveal the best. Oh, of course, yes. To, to the, the Dukes, that, that they, they have set them up, that they've done this all. And you know, not, don't take it personally, it was just a bet for a dollar. And um, I suppose what maybe they were more insulted by the fact that Billy Ray won the bet. Yes, yeah. <laughs> You've got, which one was it? Was it Randolph was the one led off on the stretcher? Randolph then, yes, has a heart attack yeah. and was led off on the stretcher and Mortimer's just screaming, then, turn the machines back on! <laughs> um, and this was the part that you mentioned earlier on where we call back to this in, I suppose, five years' time or so. Um, yeah. in coming to America because um, Eddie Murphy's character in that is the Prince of Zamunda gives two homeless guys what is essentially a paper bag full of cash. Yeah, quite a lot of money. Yeah, and the two homeless guys turn out to be the Dukes. Yeah, who then say, we're back. We're back. <laughs> Randolph, Randolph! I'm still not talking to you. Look, Mortimer, we're back. So yeah, that was quite a sweet little callback. Yeah, and I think the weird thing is, is that I don't think I'd seen trading places before coming to America. Oh really? Yeah, that meant nothing to you. Well, I, yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, it must it would have been later on when I was thinking, oh right, okay, they're the you know because I suppose back then I'd have probably thought so on a line that well that's not a sequel so that can't be real. That way, yeah. you know, you don't get the idea of these sort of cameos and weird callbacks and stuff and. We've had this. They've lost nearly four hundred million dollars. We go to a tropical island where Louis and Ophelia have a little boat. Uh, Billy Ray and his girlfriend, I suppose, are soaking up the sun. And even Coleman is uh, barking instructions at uh, a local waiter. Uh, the local butler, yes. So just, I mean, that that's an interesting, uh, yeah, response to the "Does wealth change you?" thing. Yeah, yeah. nature and all that he Coleman has immediately turned gamekeeper <laughs> and um, you'd hope that he'd have at least some understanding but uh, yeah yeah pro- probably not I don't know how much money they would have made but uh, certainly enough to to retire to this random island in the middle of the sun somewhere and they've all gone together which is you know quite sweet I mean you can see you know Louis and Ophelia have fallen in love yeah but they all need to go to the same and that, what was quite funny about this Caribbean island that I notice it's clearly freezing. <laughs> it's clearly not the on season. All the women are forced to wear bikinis, but all the blokes are in knitwear. Yeah. And if you look at the wind in the background, it's blowing up a storm. This was probably filmed in a harbour somewhere in January. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know, cl- you know, Billy Ray is lying on a tropical beach in a cable knit sweater, practically. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but his poor girlfriend, who must have been so cold. But that's not that. That wouldn't look good on a film. There you go. Uh, and I, it's a slightly geeky thing. I, I, you know, when you see someone and uh, the the butler then on the tropical island, um, look really familiar. It turned out he'd been in Superman three, which I've probably seen a hundred thousand times. <laughs> which who was he in Superman three? He was, you know, when Superman puts out the fire at the chemical plant with this yeah he was the doctor who has this acid who says it's the strong and he gives him the acid then that blows up the computer at the end right 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 oh. it was one of those things i was like where's he from where's he from and then straight you know thank god you've got imdb or google these days yeah <laughs> <laughs> well on that festive bombshell that was trading places i suppose we can only dream of having 394 million dollars to lose but that was that's christmas or new year merry new year Merry New Year! Merry New Year! (laughs) (laughs) Well, Emma, thanks for coming along. Thank you. Now, we discussed last time your uh, Zeitgeist Tape podcast. What have we got to look forward to on that in the near future? Well, we've just released an episode that I'm particularly proud of, uh, which was a documentary I made for my dissertation on political podcasts. So anyone who's interested in sort of why people do podcasts about politics, um, that's just come out. And then our Christmas special will be coming out later in December uh, on Scrooged. Oh. Politics of Scrooged. Blimey. <laughs> See, we looked at Scrooged with just the, uh, that's like The Running Man or that's like Groundhog Day. But, yeah, I suppose that that's a film that is sort of rife again with politics and money and yeah i mean 
I mean, you, it's taken straight from the Dickens, yeah. which was a very political um, book. So there you go. Being a, a bit of a political Luddite myself, I, I'll, hopefully we'll all learn something from it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we try to be quite listenable as well as quite political. Oh, so, oh good. So, I mean, it's not going to go over my head. No, oh, no, good. God, no. No, no, the, the, we, any insider jokes we try to keep uh, <laughs> very much to ourselves. <laughs> well, um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll link to that on, on this podcast because, um, yeah, it'd be good. And, and I know we've got a couple more films that you had um, earmarked to, to be back on here for, which we'll have to try and catch up in the new year and do. Brilliant. I'm sure we had, Look forward to it. one of them, The, the Colour Purple? That sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that'd, be, that'd, be that'd be a light one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Christ. <laughs> Emma, your Twitter is uh, at Emma Bennell underscore, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Lovely. And um, what I'll do is I know that the the song that was out at number one at the time of this film's release was um, Only You by the Flying Pickets. Now, I've, oh, now I've done that one before. Ah. See, and it would seem churlish to use that one again. So what I was planning on doing was going to use the Christmas number one from 1983. Unfortunately, it's the same song. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, wasn't that the Christmas number one? It was, yeah, so I've kind of uh, backed myself into a corner there. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I don't need to play it now. The copyright, <laughs> the copyright police aren't going to be coming for me again. Anyway, Emma, thank you very much for joining us. Thank I'll speak you. to you soon. <laughs> This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.